Hey, hey. How's it going? I'm waiting for you to respond. So if you responded back to me while you're listening to the episode, I applaud you because that's awesome. That's what I would have done. How is everyone doing? This is Simon for the Closed Network Privacy Podcast, episode number 17, recorded today, Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. I was actually explicitly asked by Robbie in our Matrix chat room, hey, when are you dropping the next episode? And that was yesterday. And I said, tomorrow. And that's today. And it's 11.20 p.m. So still technically today. Though... I'll probably be wrapping up and uploading uh, the next day, September 1st, but, you know, close enough, right? So, uh, yeah, episode 17, speaking of the Matrix chat room, feel free to pop on in there. We've got about, oh, I don't I don't know, a couple dozen people in there uh, so far. Some great conversations happening, questions, answers, philosophy, philosophy of use and privacy and security. What tools, what apps, what are you using Kind of the gear, the gear dump, right? Uh, one of one of the users in there just got some new UB keys today and posted them into the Matrix chat. So it's always cool to see that uh, they picked up a UB key five C NFC and the uh, the Nano. I have not used the Nano, but they look dope. So Robbie, uh, if you're if you're listening, those are cool. Congrats! <laughs> I like the UB keys. UB keys are uh, I've mentioned them before. For two-factor authentication, they're hardware devices that you can keep on your keychain or somewhere near near yourself. So instead of using a software app like Bitwarden or, um, I don't know, Authy is a popular one owned by Twilio, these are actually hardware. So you cannot generate a two-factor authentication uh, token without the hardware device. Cool thing is these hardware devices both work off USB-C. Uh, if you have iPhone, they have iPhone for, as well uh, as as well as NFC. So you can just hold it up to the back of your phone. It will connect, and so it knows it's you physically, you know, presenting the hardware key. It will generate the token, and then you take that token key and or the the, the number that it generates, and that's what you plug into the website that you're logging into. It could be like you know your bank or your email. Or any number of things that you want to keep really, really secure. I recommend using two-factor authentication wherever possible. It's a pain in the butt. It is. But it makes it a pain in the butt if your information is found in a data leak and someone tries logging into your account and you have not had time to change your password or or you're unaware of changing your password. Maybe the uh, service provider hasn't sent out the notification that you need to update your password where so in those scenarios this two-factor authentication is yet one more barrier that has to be crossed you're probably used to seeing these already if you log into your bank account oftentimes it'll send you a code over text messaging which i hate i hate that if they don't give you another option but it, everyone probably is familiar with that at this point this hardware key basically uh, replaces that mechanism of using an sms text message code and you can use a hardware key to generate the code you don't have the key no code uh so anytime you beef up security it usually means less convenience but for people like myself and probably a lot of you listening you're totally okay with that trade-off so for this episode i have a few things that i want to cover um i have a correction to make on the previous 
episode where I was talking about Tornado Cache. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Graphene OS and updating uh, to Android 13, as well as a few leaks. And I'm going to also talk about mast mast purchasing options, which probably will only. Um, I don't know all the countries. I think most of them are going to be specific to the U.S. I'm working on getting more resources for people in the EU and Canada. Um, I don't know where everyone is. Um, a lot of the services and tools I talk about pretty much are available to everyone, but some around financial masking are going to be very specific to the financial regulations within your respective country. So if you are out there in a specific country, I can try to do some research, but most of everything that I recommend is just going to be what I use or what I have access to in the United States. So that may be kind of a a barrier for a lot of people. And I uh, will try to do my best, but I know that um, in certain EU countries, it's kind of pretty strict. So that may be where something you actually look at using cryptocurrency more. I, I don't I don't know. But a question came up about how do I pay someone in person using uh, kind of like a, a privacy respecting method. Uh, so kind of go into a little bit about that. Um, I have some tips uh, as well that I've uh learned from me my own experiences as well as uh reading the extreme privacy book by michael bazell uh he has a podcast i highly recommend it's very very in-depth sometimes his um his techniques are sometimes even a, like pretty ex- i mean it is called extreme privacy so he is actually a consultant he gets paid uh to help people disappear essentially so if you want to go to that real extreme level of like purchasing your home or vehicles, getting insurance without even using your real name and stuff, or at least having your real name uh, on the titles or the land title using trusts and LLCs and things like that. That is, that is a great resource. Um, So if you're, if you're wanting to go to that next level, I highly recommend pointing you in that direction uh, there is a podcast. He has books. He has courses. He also tr- uh, uh, does a lot of training for investigators who do open source investigation. Um, and they have like a whole—I I don't know if it's a certification, but they have a, a whole curriculum, and it's quite interesting. You can go down the rabbit hole as far as you want to go. I like to think as myself as pretty extreme, but more in the experimental kind of. Um, aspect not necessarily in the implementation for my everyday life because at some point you have to decide you know for yourself what your threat model is and what kind of attack surfaces you're willing to live with Uh, and for me you know i i'm kind of somewhere in the middle i like convenience but i also want to try to do as much as i can to improve my privacy for my digital footprint online and also for my own security. Uh, and I say privacy and security because they're not mutually exclusive at all. So you can have uh, a lot of security, but not really focused on your privacy. So if you're on like a lot of social media sites and you're, you're a public figure, you may not, you know, and if you're checking into places and things that would be probably not as pr- private 
but maybe you use really strong passwords. You use uh, two-factor authentication. You have like things like really tight and locked down. That's more of the securing your your data, access to your uh, accounts and things like that. For privacy, I look at more as like what you are doing, you're masquerading. You're using pseudonyms. You're not putting your real identity online. You're trying to be as anonymous or pseudo-anonymous as possible. Um, And you could also be sloppy at your security, though. (laughs) So, uh, you know, when I say privacy, security, I don't mean them. Sometimes, Sometimes they coincide, but oftentimes they do not. So... Uh, I want to be just kind of clear with that as we kind of go through different, uh, you know, um, uh, strategies or talking about different tools, applications, and things like that. Um, so take that into consideration when you're when you're kind of planning out your own personal strategy uh, for yourself or a family member that you're trying to help. Uh, sometimes the more things that you make secure uh, can actually be a hindrance to the other party. Uh, like for instance, a husband and wife, if you're sharing finances or you have stuff that you both need to access, sometimes security can kind of get in the way of actually trying to accomplish something. So these are kind of things that you might want to work out. Like if you're using uh, two-factor authentication for, for example. So one thing I want to touch on is on the previous episode, episode 16, I was talking about tornado cash, which is a cryptocurrency mixer. And I th- I'm pretty sure I was referring to it as a Bitcoin mixer, and I was incorrect about that. It was actually specifically for Ethereum. Ethereum is probably the second largest, most popular cryptocurrency, whether you want to call it a shitcoin or whatever, that's totally fine. But it, you know, by market cap and everything else, it's generally you know, within the top three uh, cryptocurrencies as far as what's being used. The Ethereum blockchain is what a lot of other cryptocurrencies are based off of, uh, whether it's ERC-20 tokens or NFTs, you might have heard, um, because of their smart contract capabilities within their system. So a smart contract is basically something that you can open up with a third party, and when something is completed, the contract is complete, then the transaction can actually uh, transpire. So you think of it as like a custodian, a digital custodian that uh, you don't have to trust the person that individually you're doing business with or doing the transaction with. You're both just trusting the blockchain and the smart contract manages it based on a set of rules. So what Tornado Cash does is it basically creates smart contracts where <clears throat> you can actually deposit Ethereum. And what it does is it basically mixes into an ecosystem and it issues a receipt withdrawal receipt that you have to hold on to. Uh, It's, it's the only way to get it back and you can leave it in there for an indefinite amount of time. And based upon the rules of these smart contracts, you can withdraw at a later date, hopefully to a different new wallet. And what that does is it breaks the, uh, relationship to the original wallet that you deposited it from so in essence it's kind of like i, I don't want to say money laundering because that's it makes it sound illegal i mean there's nothing illegal about technology and code but uh because the u.s treasury had sanctioned the use of tornado cash it essentially made it kind of this illegal 
process, right? They're calling it like laundering or whatever. I don't, I don't look at it that way. However, even though it's been sanctioned, Tornado Cash still functions uh, because it's on the blockchain and it's Tornado Cash is accessible via the IPFS network. Um, IP, IPFS is a peer-to-peer storage network. Um, so content is accessible through peers you know, located all over the world uh, that can relay information and store it uh, or do both. And if you want to find out more about like how all of that works, I actually will have a link to a YouTube channel, uh, a video by Mental Outlaw, and he does a really good breakdown. He even shows what it looks like and how it works. It's pretty cool. Um, so I just kind of wanted to put that out there because I don't, sometimes I misspeak because my brain is scattered. Um, maybe it's ADD or whatever. <laughs> I don't know, but my brain gets kind of scattered and sometimes things come out or I jump ahead or I, I am not as thorough as maybe I should be. And though most of the listeners out there may not really particularly care, maybe you weren't even using tornado cash. I, I just want to try to be as accurate as possible. So I'm just going back to correct that. So um, again, I'll have a link to that video uh, to Men- Mental Outlaw. I like his YouTube channel, by the way. Um, I'm actually going to be putting some, uh, or, you know, or as many as I can uh, resources on the closednetwork.io website uh, that I'm not exactly sure how I'll structure it. Maybe it'll just be like a, its own dedicated page that I'll just kind of continue adding to because there's a lot of great YouTube channels out there as well as podcasts that I consume, I listen to, and I watch. Um, I think like Naomi Brockwell, um, Rob Braxman sometimes, though. I, you know, kind of get, they're kind of long. Um, there's some really good information there. The Hated One, who's been on the podcast with me a few times, um, highly recommend checking out that channel as well. Uh, Side of Burritos, uh, Sun Nudsen. There's some great creators i'm sure i'm not these are just the ones that are coming to the to the top of my mind podcasts are uh firewalls don't stop dragons the opt-out podcast um there's there's a pretty good amount of content out there that is all within the space and you'll notice one thing is there is quite a bit of bleed over from people who are pro privacy and trying to educate as many people as they can using open source tools um, and cryptocurrency because they kind of go hand in hand together in a lot of ways. I think that that will probably continue to be more uh, interesting or it will interest people more, especially as there's more information about discussions about within the United States, a, a central bank digital coin, a CBDC, and what that will mean for our, our financial futures, like and how we transact and do commerce, you know, how it's tracked uh, recently this year in the United States, uh, they changed a lot of the IRS um, uh, reporting rules. So uh, it's just an example. It used to be you could sell stuff like on eBay or Facebook marketplace and there wasn't, you didn't have to report it as income. Uh, but now if anything you sell over $600 within a calendar year, they're going to issue a 1099 and so a lot of people, that's really kind of rubbing people the wrong way, myself included, because the frustrating thing, not to get political, but the frustrating thing is, is like if you pay taxes on the income and then you 
purchase something and you pay sales tax on that particular widget, whatever it is, and it loses value and then you don't need it anymore and you turn around and sell it. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it income because it's, it's, it's something that you've already paid in. You've already paid taxes on, (laughs) on the income you use to purchase said widget and you're just, maybe you don't need it or maybe it was for a specific use Maybe it was, you know, baby furniture you don't need anymore and you're selling an entire room with the rocking chair and the crib. And if you sell it for 800 bucks, now it's going to be, you have to report it as income. So these are the types of things that, you know, the regulators uh, want to have control over. And so a central bank digital currency, a digital coin is probably the next step in that phase. These are things that I'll be kind of following. And as I have pertinent information. I will be sharing it. I try not to put too much of my own personal bias into things, but let's be real. I mean, if you're kind of into trying to unplug from the corporate surveillance, uh, there's probably some distrust with how your data is being harvested and utilized, not just by corporations, but by government tech as well. So, Uh, And maybe not. And I don't want to speak for everybody. I'm speaking for myself. But these are just things that motivate and drive people like myself to continue fighting and resisting uh, this, like, unspoken uh, social contract that's been signed unwillingly, sort of, kind of. What I mean by that is, you know, when we buy a phone or we sign up for a service, you agree to the, the the license agreement, the terms of, of use, terms of service, and a lot of times, but they change. They change so much, and no one's asking you to resign. It's just like assumed that, well, if you're still using it, then you just fall under this umbrella of like we can change stuff and do whatever we want at any point down the road, and you just have to suck up and deal with it. And that's kind of where I really start to have um, a lot of distrust with a lot of these, you know, Uh, services, whether it's Apple, whether it's Google, whether it's social media platforms or any other website that's mishandling, misusing, or just freely handing over all of that information. So that's, that's kind of what motivates me to do things like use Graphene OS, de-Google phones, use Calyx OS, self-host, use my own search engine, uh, because this, the, the smaller amount of data that I can like leave out for to either be mined, sold, uh, analyzed, and used primarily for targeted ads, but it can be used for quite a bit more than that. That's kind of you know where I'm looking at things. I'm not really looking at things as so much as today, but tomorrow, uh, where we were just even five years ago compared to today, and the amount of data that's being collected and analyzed and sold bothers me um, because that information is the new commodity. It's, you know, there's a, if you watch tech lore, uh, Henry, I forget his co-host name off the top of my head, but he, his uh, Twitter handle is the new oil and it is data is the new oil. um, Meaning that it is the most valuable thing out there that, that all these companies want to collect. So, uh, on the topic of Graphenos, where I just mentioned, I just I want to say I've now been a week. I think it was last almost a week. It's been six days, I think, uh, five or six days since 
the Android 13 update rolled out and hit my device. And so far, so good. I have actually noticed some increased snappiness with my Google Pixel 6 Pro. That's what I have for my main, my daily driver. My primary phone is a Pixel 6 Pro running Graphene OS. And the, the thumbprint scanner seems faster. And it just seems like snappier. And the battery life is actually, uh, seems it seems actually a little improved. And I don't know if that, you know, is what everyone else's experiences are, but so far my experience has been pleasant. I'm I'm really enjoying Android 13 and there's some new features. Um, I'd like to kind of continue using it for another week or two. I'm taking some notes and maybe talk about that, but I also don't know how interested people are in that. Um, so two big things I want to talk about on this episode and they may or may not be easy takeaways. I try to leave a takeaway that somebody can do right away and just after that, after one episode, maybe implement into their life and already start off uh, the next day uh, with a better privacy strategy. This one might be a little bit more than a day, but it's at least something to ponder and consider. Email's huge, right? It's a big part of our lives. With everything we do in our life, there's, you know, so at some point, um, email comes into play. Uh, whether it's setting up a bank account or communicating with your mortgage broker or whatever, whatever it is you're doing. So, Tutanota, ProtonMail, LavaBit, these are pretty popular names within the privacy respecting service providers for email. Uh, and, and it makes sense. I've self hosted email in the past. It's doable, but it's a lot of overhead and it's a constant babysitting of like making sure you're keeping everything updated and so on and so forth. So I do not self-host my email anymore. Um, I might try it again at some point in the future because there are definitely some new appliances out there that, that seem like they could work with pretty well, but really realistically, um, I kind of just don't want to to manage the headache and the burden of managing the server and backups and all of that fun stuff. But I do think that it's important to own your email in the sense of if you're going to set up service with, say, ProtonMail or Tutanota, to think about registering your own domain name. And it could be anything. It could be it could just be whatever you want it to be. There's so many different extensions now. Uh, that you could probably find something short and simple and sweet might even be able to use, you know, something for your family. But I, I really want to, I really want people to consider the idea of buying their own domain name for a couple different reasons. One is if you have your own domain name, then you can set up, uh, servers or services, whether you're self-hosting at your house or you're doing a VPS, like a virtual private server, uh, for whatever purpose, you can set up subdomains as many as you want to point to the IP address of that server very easily. And so using simple domain name like um, uh, naming, like a, like a naming convention that you come up with, uh, can be really helpful and streamline some of the things that you do if you decide to self-host anything. Uh, that might be a Bitwarden server. It might be a Nextcloud server. Uh, it could be a BTC pay server. It may be it's, it could be anything. So the biggest benefit to self-hosting, or not self-hosting, to, to owning your own domain name is that you can use that domain name with a provider. 
So for example, um, I'm using Tutanota, right, for my email provider, but I own my domain name. So if for some reason, let's just say there's a major outage or Tutanota starts having major service problems, um, or you know maybe they're clo- maybe they shut down or maybe they're uh, raided. I, who knows? I can move my email to another provider, maybe Proton Mail, maybe somebody else, because I ha- I own my own custom domain name. Yeah, I'll have to update some MX records like in my domain registrar to point to these new mail servers, but I can kind of move it if I need to. So if I'm just relying on my name or, you know, at protonmail.com and something happens to protonmail, there's a lot of like faith that they're going to be around indefinitely. Um, I know we kind of poo-poo on Google all the time, but I can pretty much, you know, guarantee that Gmail will probably be around by the time I die. Um, Yahoo addresses, people still have Earthlink and Comcast.net addresses. They've been around for decades. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to, I don't want to put any fear into people like, oh my gosh, is ProtonMail going to like disappear? I, no, I don't think so. But uh, it's such a big part of our life as far as like this history of, of all of our communications and recovering accounts when we need to. If you forgot a password on some website, it's going to email you that password. It's such a big piece of our of access for us that it's maybe something to consider in your journey uh, to to move over to you know maybe you still use one of those providers but using your own domain name you can register a domain name pretty pretty cheaply usually for anywhere from about eight to twenty dollars depending upon the extension that you register uh, I've used all. All of the domain, well, not all. I've used a lot of domain registrars over the last, you know, two decades, um, because I like buying domain names for some reason. I, you know, like the name, or I come up with a name. Oh, it's available. I'm gonna I buy it. <laughs> Half the time, I don't do anything with it, but a lot of times I do. And the cool thing is, is that there are registrars out there that you can even use, uh, purchase your domain name using crypto, like Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies like Monero. I. Um, I don't really have any to recommend. I've used, you know, uh, Namecheap because they're cheap and they accept crypto, which is nice. Uh, you can you can pay for it with cryptocurrency. So if you kind of want to like mask your identity of the ownership of the domain name, that might be a route for you. Um, I've used GoDaddy. I've used Hover, uh, Network Solutions. It doesn't really matter, uh, but it's just something to consider. Put on your consideration list. Because if you ever run into a situation where you're like, oh, uh-oh, something, I, I'm not feeling good about this. I'd like to move my email. Then you can move your email and all your email addresses stay the same. And you'll always be able to get back your emails for some website that you forgot you registered on and you couldn't remember the password. And, oh, crap, how many has that ever happened to you where you registered? You know, it was like, oh, gosh, I don't use that Yahoo anymore. You know, like Yahoo, like I think after like six months or a year, I don't know, there's some time. Uh, that goes by if you haven't actually actively logged in or used the email account, they just delete it. Uh, they just purge the purge the account. So um, that's kind of one big piece I wanted to talk about. Um, the next is payment methods. Um, now, cryptocurrency will be a payment method that you probably can use just about anywhere in the world. If you want to rent a VPS server, if you want to register a domain name, if you want to transact uh, with people online, 
But when it comes to in-person transactions, things get a little bit trickier where you're using a physical card. Um, I want to just share what my kind of philosophy is around that. And it may or may not apply or may not work for you, but it's kind of a workaround. So I like to, and this is, this isn't just something I came up with. This was on advice out of the book that I read from Michael Basil. So I definitely want to give credit to that, but I have kind of built a system where I buy prepaid credit cards. Uh, so these are Visa cards that you can you see hanging in the grocery store at the end caps, like near the front sometimes with gift cards and whatever. And you can buy prepaid Visas. And usually uh, you buy them anywhere for like in increments of like 20 or 50 or 200. Uh, I think they get up to like 500. But there's also reloadable ones you can get uh, through other service providers. But uh, we'll keep it real simple. So what I like to do is when I... I am at the grocery store. I like to purchase one of these in cash. And then I put the date onto a post-it note of the date I purchased it and where I purchased it. Because I generally, (laughs) that sounds silly, but I'll even go cross town to stores that I don't normally shop at from like my normal groceries. I'll go somewhere else. Or if I'm on a road trip or I'm out of town or I'm I'm visiting family, I'll just pop in and pick one up. Uh, You know, and then I write the date and where I bought it. This comes into play because... I like to age the cards. Aging means to uh, let it sit for a while. And it sounds kind of funny. And it's kind of more like, sounds like the movie Hackers or something. I don't know. It's kind of silly. But the concept is, is that the longer the card sits before you use it, the less likely, it, it the, the harder it can be to trace back to the origin of who purchased it. Like, let's say, looking at surveillance footage, right? Most, most, uh, Brick and mortars have surveillance cameras, and generally they probably purge or overwrite their hard drives after like 60 days, 90 days, something like that. Like if there's not been a crime, there's not been an investigation of any kind, um, why keep all this crazy footage, especially when you have limited resources, right? You probably only have so many DVRs and stuff. So why would you keep stuff for years and years? So that's kind of the concept of, uh, of aging a card. You buy it and you sit on it. So the idea is, is that you're buying one maybe every two months or three months, maybe every week, every month. I don't know. It depends on your needs. And then you're aging these cards so you know how old the card is. And you want to use the oldest ones sooner because some of these cards can actually start to lose value. Like they charge, you know, like a service fee to maintain the account, which is total BS. But uh, it's all done through computer systems and databases. So it's not like anyone actually has to expend any kind of like labor. Uh, but it's just a way to make sure that, um, you know, they can get money out of it. Uh, it's a money grubbing industry for sure. Uh, it's not, you know, the best uh, system, but it's definitely one that you can use where you can be in person and hand a card to somebody. And if you don't want to give them your real information, you don't have to because it's not even on the card itself. It usually says a gift for you or a gift card or something like that right on the front of it, whether it's MasterCard or Visa. Um, I think there's even like American Express ones now, or I can't remember. Don't quote me on that. But I, you know, I think there's a couple of different Visa MasterCard for sure, where then you can pay for things in person and that works really well. Um, the thing is, is you want to keep track of how much you spent and where you spent it, because you also want to try to mix those transactions. So you're not using the same card everywhere, especially like 
local. Um, according to like Michael Bazell, he has a method where he has like category categorizations of these prepaid credit cards. So like zero one is for miscellaneous and travel zero two might be for only purchases for things at the home or that you need for the home three might be just emergency so you only use it in an actual emergency situation um and you kind of like categorize the cards so you're not you're not using the same one to say buy gas at some place that's going to now have a digital record that you purchased gas at this gas station at this date and time at this you know, with this address. And then you're also using that same card at your house because your plumber came to, you know, fix a a broken pipe and you're using that card to pay that individual. You want to compartmentalize those out into like categories. This might be a little extreme and it is kind of extreme, but if you're trying to set up, you know, a system that um, kind of disconnects your purchase habits from the actual source of how you're paying for it, then you need to have some kind of method, some process that you is repeatable and easy to to maintain. Because let's be honest, like I said in the beginning, when it comes down to uh, security, you're usually the trade off is convenience, and some of these things are inconvenient, but uh, they don't have to be if you have a plan ahead of time of what you're going to do. If you just willy nilly pick one up here and there, and then you're not keeping track of them and you're like, gosh, you know, what did I do for this one? Maybe you use one, excuse me, maybe you use one for prepaying an entire year of your mint mobile plan. In the United States, you can actually set up service with mint mobile, which is an MVNO for, which is a a reseller for T-Mobile. And it's a great service. fantastic and it's very affordable like unlimited plan i think i paid the whole year unlimited data plan i think i paid the whole year i think it was like 320 bucks 340 bucks uh but that's for unlimited data at 5g speed so you know they have even cheaper plans but you can actually pay i've i've done it with multiple sim cards you can pay for your mint mobile plan using bogus information so not your real name not your real address and using a privacy.com masked debit card i've done that with mint Mint, Mint mobile and i've also paid for it with a prepaid visa gift card um that again wasn't even connected to like privacy.com or anything it was just paid for in cash um and the beauty about the gift cards is you have a physical card you can hand to somebody so if they have a card reader they need to swipe it through uh, that that's a great option. These days, um, a lot of things can be paid online, uh, so that's that's you know convenient to be able to do do that. And I kind of really just use privacy.com for most of that, for, especially for recurring charges, like say like a streaming service like Spotify or Netflix. Um, you can set up those cards so they're only tied to that merchant. So once it's once it's charged by that merchant, only that merchant can charge. Like it can't be used anywhere else. They also have burner cards for like one-time use. Like let's say you just want to purchase some products from one website one time and you're not going to have any regular recurring charges going on there. You can just use a single burner card and once it's charged, it's no good. Um, I I wish that service was available to more people outside the United States because it's, it's awesome. Uh, I, I, Love it for a lot of reasons. One, for the privacy shield, but two, it's also easy to manage subscriptions you forgot about. How many times have you been looking at your credit card statement and you're like, how the heck is this company charging me? And it's 
maybe it's 15 bucks, maybe it's 20 bucks. And it's not, you know, it's just like, dang it, how do I cancel this? And you, you know, you start spending time trying to figure out where to go to cancel it. And then life pops back up and distracts you. And before you know it, you've gone another couple months and these charges are going on your card still because you haven't completed uh, the cancellation. So this makes it really nice because let's say you want to sign up for that fitness app. I think I've mentioned this before, you know, some fitness app or whatever it is. Well, if you know yourself well enough and you say, I'm going to sign up for it and I probably won't do it, but I kind of want to try it because I'm in, I'm all into my feelings right now. I'm going to, I'm going to be a better version of me. So I'm going to do this fitness thing <laughs> or this keto thing, tracking my calories, whatever. Use a privacy.com card. As soon as you sign up and it charges you, pause the card. Chances are they're going to try again to charge it. And you haven't even been using that app because after a week you gave up or forgot or got lazy or whatever. Totally understandable. But now they can't charge the card because you paused it. If you decide you want to resume it, you go through and unpause it and everything's hunky-dory. It's a great way to help you save money uh, and conserve your funds. Like know exactly where they're going and and you have control over, over not spending it if you don't want to. A lot of times with credit card carriers, even if you get a new credit card number, previous services that had your credit card can still continue charging for the services because the credit card company has it set up so that you can, they can continue charging you for it. So that kind of pisses me off too. Uh, that's a whole nother thing. So anyways, uh, you know, <clears throat> It's, I, I, again, it's going to be a little challenging depending upon where you are, but those prepaid cards, devising devising, yeah, devising a plan, a strategy of how you're going to use those prepaid debit cards, aging the card, making sure you're tracking. Like the system I use is I use Michael Bazell's Basil. Michael Basil, I think. Um, I use this method, 01020304. And so what I do is on the post-it note, I just basically write, like I said, uh, the location and the date and the amount. And then I put it into, I have a file folder. <laughs> probably looks hilarious. If you could see some of the stuff I do, you'd probably roll your eyes. But I have a file folder set up with just those numbers on there. They correspond. So if I need that card, like I'm going to be traveling next week. I'll be traveling for a few days. So I'll be flying out of town and driving back with somebody. I'm actually going to take a card from Ben 2 for my traveling because that's those are the only cards I use and, and that's it. Um, and you know, I also suggest carrying cash. And a lot of people don't like to carry a lot of cash; it's understandable. But usually, you know, having a couple hundred bucks uh, doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in your wallet. Maybe you have some other stash place you can keep it. I mean, most people carry like with all the gadgets and gizmos we carry these days, some kind of a. a satchel or you know a laptop bag women carry purses you know oftentimes maybe even a little fanny pack where whatever there's a lot of places you can stash you know 40 bucks here you know 100 bucks there kind of like not have it all in your wallet so that way if you're paying for something you're not flashing a ton of cash uh and making yourself a potential target but having cash having prepaid debit cards uh, is a great way to be able to stay off of the digital paper trail of and and letting these companies track your uh, location and your purchase history and all this other kind of a thing, and then selling it. They, that's pretty much what they do. They turn around and sell the information, uh, you know, because they have they know who you are if you're using the credit card or your bank debit card. 
Uh, they know your age. They know your you know income bracket. They know where you live. So it's it's a it's prime for the pickings. So the more you can kind of like opt out of that by using other methods, uh, the better off you'll be. So uh, another thing I wanted to mention on the last episode, I mentioned PGPP, which stands for Pretty Good Phone Privacy by a company called Invisive. Um, Invisive has uh, created this eSIM data activation cell phone service plan that you can pay for. Uh, they have like a couple, two plans, I think 40 or 45 bucks uh, for a, a set amount of, of data transfer and then unlimited for 90 bucks. Um, I was using it. I like it. I think I'm going to be using it and on a different device. So I'm actually going to be flashing Graphene OS onto a, a Pixel 6a and setting it up with data only with the eSIM with PGPP. Now, granted, you won't have like a phone number. I won't have a phone number on there. So I won't be able to send and receive phone calls. But that's not really what I'm interested in having it for because a lot of the communication I do is just over data anyways. Um, and especially like you can still, if you if you install my sudo on there and you have uh, my sudo account with a phone number, you can text through the app. That's really all I really need. I don't need a physical phone number on that device. Um, but you can use it for data. And they also have their own private relay, which is basically like an always-on VPN uh, that's the service I had mentioned that you can change your MZ number as well, depending upon the plan that you're on. I think you can do it like eight times or nine times on the $45 plan and then 30 times on the $90 plan. The MZ is what is tied to the subscriber information. And apparently they have some ways of decoupling, uh, the device, subscriber information from the owner of the device. Now, when you sign up for the service, they don't actually, you don't actually uh, give them like your name and address and all that kind of a thing. Now they do have a credit card field that, you know, I used to put it in, but I also filled that with fake data and used a privacy.com number. I want to try that again with a prepaid card. <laughs> I'm, I just like to experiment and monkey around with stuff because I like to see, how, how much stuff works, right? Um, I'm also using a silent, a silent link, silent link electronic SIM on a Google Pixel 5 running Calyx OS, and it's been working great. Uh, I have a number, so that's a number I, I registered with silent link. They're an MVNO for AT&T, I believe. Yes, AT&T. Uh, and I paid for it with Bitcoin. They don't know who I am. I don't really know who they are. So it could be a honeypot for all I know, right? Uh, I, I I don't know. But uh, they, you know, I was able to register uh, that phone and I got a phone number. I can't make phone calls, but I can receive calls and I can send in and receive text messages, which is important if you want to use something like Signal. Um, on this other device that I'm going to be trying out with PGPP, I'm exclusively trying to stick with things like Session, Threema, Briar, matrix you get the picture in and encrypted apps that don't rely on a phone number like signal we all love signal signal is a great easy onboarding communications application uh, that provides end-to-end encryption but the the weak point is the phone number the phone number is the unique identifier and so i want to try to get away from that a little bit and see if i can get some of my peoples my friends and family to come along with me. I've got pretty much everybody on Signal. Well, that was a great first step. And now it's kind of like, hey, let's maybe try Session out. Um, I really like Session. They have actually a really entertaining 
uh, podcast. I think it's called like the session tapes on their YouTube channel. If I think about it, actually, let me just write that down on my notes. So I remember to put that in the show notes um, because <laughs> I watched it the other night and uh, it's, it's really good. It's actually quite entertaining. Um, a couple things I want to mention uh, some data breaches. So if you are uh, have any accounts with these services, you may want to uh, go change your password. If anyone out there uses Plex, I have a Plex account. I went and changed my password, but apparently they suffered a data breach. Um, there's an article on a really good article about it on malware bytes. Um, and so I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And they recommend that you change your password. Uh, if you're using a password manager and have unique passwords for everything that you use, you're in pretty good shape because obviously that, that, you know, uh, breach information is only good with their platform, but you don't want to go change that password. Um, there was also a data leak, uh, with LastPass. LastPass is a pretty popular password manager that I personally don't like. Um, I'm not going to poo poo on them, but they've had multiple issues over the years with data breaches and, and uh, vulnerabilities. They say that none of the password vaults that people have accounts with them were compromised, but, they did, the hackers did get access to the source code uh, for LastPass. So that could lead to bigger problems down the road, potentially, uh, if, you know, who knows. Um, I would suggest maybe ditching LastPass. I would suggest um, using a free password manager if you like, like Aegis or uh, KeePass XC. Uh, or maybe Bitwarden. I personally love Bitwarden. I use Bitwarden. I'm crazy about them. You can self-host, which is awesome, uh, but you don't have to. It costs like two or three bucks if you pay for the year. I think it's like 30 some odd bucks for the whole year, and I pay for it. I like supporting companies that um, allow their software to be self-hosted, which means it's open source, and they're trying to provide a good, good solution out there for people, and I, you know, uh, again, I've mentioned on other podcasts, pay for your stuff. You know, you um, you're either the product by being having your data harvested, or or you're actually paying for it with money. I prefer to pay for it with money, and I like to support companies. I want to see more companies like like LastPass stick around, um, donate to your favorite project. I really urge you once a month, pick a project, maybe pick more, whatever you can afford, and donate. Donate to Session. Donate to Graphene OS if you use it. Donate to Signal. Um, it's a lot of these projects really rely on donations to sustain the development and and security updates and all that fun stuff that we really rely on. Uh, and so it's really important to at least you know inc- include that uh, in your in your monthly uh, spend you know spending if you will. So and you can also donate to me, <laughs> but. Um, it's not a it's not a cry for donations, but I, I definitely appreciate any donations. Um, I've, I've got the Patreon set up. I plan to do something with that, but I also want to try not to exclude too much content. So I think for Patreon, what we might do is um, have like special like live sessions or something, maybe with guests, uh, and then those those recorded sessions will go out so that everybody can enjoy them. But if you're a Patreon supporter, that you actually get to participate. Um, also looking at doing some merch and some other cool stuff uh, for Patreon supporters. If you support the channel, it supports me and not just me as an individual, but also a lot of the things that I uh, spend 
back into the project, whether it's uh, VPS fees or plausible analytics or uh, you know graphic designers or anything buying buying equipment to to test it and see how it works and and provide feedback. Um, so the um, the people who donate through Podcast 2.0, I really appreciate that. I know it's a little bit more cumbersome to set up, uh, you know, an account with like Podverse or Fountain. Um, but this, for those that actually might be interested in, in how to donate, not just to me, but there's a lot of podcasters out there that will accept Bitcoin, what we call sats, satoshis, they're small denominations of Bitcoin, as donations through the podcast app. So you can actually stream it while you can stream the Satoshis while you're listening, or you can send a boost, you know, a hundred, 500, you know, a thousand, you know, or, you know, a couple million Satoshis if you want to send them. Um, but what you can do is you can go to newpodcastapps.com and f- those are all podcast 2.0 compliant apps. And uh, an easy way to load up some Bitcoin would be to like download strike S T R I K E. It's a Bitcoin, um, uh, what am I trying to say? It's a Bitcoin vendor, not a vendor, uh, exchange. Sorry. It's late. <laughs> it's after midnight now. Uh, it's a Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin exchange that you can purchase Bitcoin through. It will require KYC. So you do have to, uh, give your personal information. But the cool thing is, is that, uh, it's on the lightning network. So if you bought, let's say 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 30, but whatever, however much you want through strike, you could send it to your, uh, your, uh, your podcast wallet, and then you can donate to your favorite podcasters. It's a really cool, cool way to do it without having to, uh, you know, use like a, a debit card, credit card or something like that. Um, so there's a couple different payment options. If you want to support the channel uh, or the, uh, the podcast, uh, you call it a channel, I guess I'm thinking YouTube for a second. Uh, if you want to support, you can. There's a support tab on the closednetwork.io website, and that kind of shows you a couple different things. And we might have other ways to do that. Uh, I'd like to have some merch where people can just straight buy it from the e-commerce store. Um, that's something else I'm working on. It's a lot of things I'm working on. I've got articles, uh, how-tos, um, tips, like the apps that I use and how I have my devices configured. There's a lot of stuff I'm working on that I'm trying to get out and organize so that it can really help people out but also feel free to pop into the matrix chat room because uh we're all kind of like answering each other you know helping each other out simple questions some are difficult um so yeah i mean that's really my my vision is that it's not always just me it's like all of us helping each other because there's so much to learn there's so much to know things are changing all the time that it's impossible to stay on top of every aspect of cryptocurrency and security and privacy and mobile phones and Linux operating systems or self-hosting or any of that kind of stuff. So the more people, the merrier. And for me, I really want to cultivate a place where everyone feels welcome, uh, regardless of whatever affiliation you have to anything outside of this particular topic. Just keep it there because all this is really focusing on for me is helping each other uh, find ways to protect ourselves, protect our family and friends, and kind of just also have fun with it. Because like I said on the previous episode, I really want to try to stay more positive. And even though sometimes a lot of these things are very dark and dystopian, um, they can be fun. It's more enjoyable if you try to take the fun fun route. 
Um, a couple other things I just wanted to mention as I am kind of kind of wrap this up is that some interesting research I've been following regarding VPNs, specifically with iOS. Um, so I'm going to have a couple of links in, in the show notes and on the website where uh, it was initially reported back in 20, I think it was in 2020, 2019 by Proton VPN. Uh, they contacted, you know, let Apple know like, hey, you know, in our research, when there is a VPN running on iOS at certain points, it's still leaking data outside the VPN. And apparently uh, it didn't get fixed. And so there's another ongoing, like a live article by um, Michael Horowitz. I think, let me just double check this. I think the most recent update uh, was this month in August. Yeah, August 27th, actually. So four days ago. Um, would that be four days? Yeah, I can math after midnight. Uh, where he was posting some screenshots of Wireshark. Wireshark is an open source network um, analyzer tool where you can monitor traffic on, on networks and you can you know basically look at what packets are coming through. And the too long didn't read of of his analysis so far of Michael Horowitz's um, uh, research, and he's updated this from May twenty fifth of twenty twenty two. There's been a dozen updates all the way up to August twenty seventh, and he says uh, VPNs on iOS are broken. At first, they appear to work fine. The iOS device gets a new public IP address and a new DNS servers and new DNS servers. Data is sent to the VPN server, but over time. A detailed inspection of data leaving the iOS device shows the VPN tunnel leaks. Data leaves the iOS device outside of the VPN tunnel. This is not a classic slash legacy DNS leak. It is a data leak. He says, I confirmed this using multiple types of VPN and software from multiple VPN providers. The latest version of iOS that he tested was 15.6.1. It says this data leak was first publicized by Proton VPN in March 2020 in iOS version 13. Uh, and he added that to the section on, uh, on August 5th. It says updated uh, Ars Technica picked this up. Ars Technica is a big tech blog uh, labeled, you know, iOS VPNs have leaked traffic for more than two years, a researcher claims. And it says, so too did Hacker News and many others. I think I even saw something on Vice, and I'm starting to see it pop up a lot more. Uh, views of this page went up from 2,000 to 76,000. <laughs> so a lot of people coming to this, looking at this research. Um, so if you have anything that you're doing that you're relying on your VPN to protect you and you're specifically using an iPhone, you may just want to be aware of this. Uh, I, it's not really maybe something to be alarmed because I mean, let's be honest, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of faults within, within these, um, within these platforms, but this is kind of a big major one. This is a big deal to me, at least if you, if you are using a VPN on your device, you are, you're expecting that all of your traffic and your DNS lookups are going through that tunnel. For those that are not familiar, DNS lookup is basically when you type in a domain name or there's any reference to a domain name, a DNS server tells it what IP address it is. So oftentimes ISPs don't necessarily even have to look at your you know, traffic. Most of your traffic that you're looking at in your web browser is encrypted through HTTPS or TLS 
anyways, but they can see the DNS lookup, so they know what website you're going to, even though they can't see the actual content that's being transmitted, they can still see where you're at. So having encrypted DNS is pretty important to, you know, uh, shield that surveillance uh, from anyone who's looking at the network. So uh, that's kind of a big deal. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep following this. If there's more news and information or if anyone has, has any other information I'd like to share, let me know. Uh, you can reach me in the matrix room. It's probably the most preferred method. Just, uh, send me a message or just, you know, at me inside the uh, chat. Uh, also I am, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm not super, I'm more like on there to just interact uh, with other privacy researchers and, and kind of like learn new information that's coming down the pike. But um, definitely feel free to also pop over to closednetwork.io and hit the contact page, shoot me an email. You can, there's a, there's a form there. Uh, you can fill it out with whatever you want. If there's some links that you want me to be aware of, feel free to pass them along. Um, I'm going to try to be uh, a little bit more involved with, you know, com- you know, finding out what people really want to know versus me just coming up with topics all the time that I want to talk about or that I think are relevant. I mean, I'll probably still do that, but I also want to know, you know, what are on people's minds? What's, what are priorities? I think mobile phones are probably really high up there. So that's why I talk about, uh, de-googled ROMs quite often between Calyx OS and Graphene OS. And that will probably be a mainstay within the podcast for sure. But if there's other things that people want to know about, uh, just let me know. So, so yeah. Also, one last thing. <laughs> um, I recently, just a couple of weeks ago, helped my mom move over to a Pixel 6 running Graphene OS. I got her. She uh, moved from her iPhone using iCloud to using a Pixel 6 and running Graphene OS. And she's on my next cloud server as the back end. So she's using CardDAV and CalDAV using the DAVX5 application from the F-Droid store to synchronize her contacts and calendars and all that to our next cloud server. Uh, all of her photos and all that stuff are automatically being uploaded to the, to the next cloud server as well. And uh, she is loving it. Um, I'm planning to have her on the podcast, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, uh, to talk about her experience because I think it might be helpful. She's not super tech savvy or anything, but she's really, um, you know, committed to like learn some new stuff. Uh, she's been using Bitwarden. She's been using privacy.com and now she's on Graphene OS and using Nextcloud as her backend. Um, yeah, I just the reason why I want to talk about that is because I really want people to feel empowered that like no matter where you are in your technical abilities, um, you can try new stuff and it can actually be a lot of fun. She said she feels like she's more in control of the phone. She knows what the phone's doing uh, versus using her iPhone where she felt like it was really dumbed down. Um, of course, you know, Apple really spends a lot of uh, time and money and effort into their user experience to make it very simplistic. But I think sometimes that over simplistic uh, interface can make you feel like you're just pushing a button. You're not really doing much else and you don't know what's really happening. Uh, whereas with graphene and kind of Android in general, um, 
it's it makes you more aware of exactly what's happening. Like if a specific app is using your location at the moment, it has light indicators. You can pull down. You can see, you know, what what sensors are being used by which apps at which time, and you can kill those individually. You can, you know, really fine tune what level of security uh, or privacy that you you want to have on the device. And I think that kind of is eye-opening for people who have been on iPhone only for like a very long time. Um, so anyways, I'll, I'll be having her on uh, sometime here, hopefully in the next few weeks, because I think it'd be kind of fun to listen to her. And also I'm going to have my brother on uh, and have kind of a, a new update. It's probably been... Close to a year now. He's been he's still on Calyx OS, but he's we're about to switch him over to Graphene here on a Pixel Five. Um, so yeah, that's gosh. I feel like I feel like I I feel like it's a short podcast and it's already been an hour. So hopefully um, you were able to gather something out of this that's beneficial and useful to you. Um, again, I really would love to hear from you. So feel free to jump in the matrix room or just go to closednetwork.io. You can connect with me on Twitter or you can just shoot me an email. I'm thinking about actually one last thing. I'm thinking about setting up a dedicated signal phone number uh, where people can I don't know. Actually, that might be kind of weird because then people will be like, well, I don't want this dude to have my phone number. Uh, And that's that's understandable. I I was trying to find a way for people to be able to send messages and and encrypted like easily. So I'll have to put some more thought into this because I also want people to be able to leave messages uh, that I can play on the podcast. I've done that in the past once or twice, I think. It's fun. It's cool um, to be able to do that. So if anyone has any ideas, let me know. I'm all ears, uh, literally, because I have my headphones on and I'm talking to myself into a microphone. So I'm definitely all ears right now. I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you for uh, sticking with me on this episode number 17. I will hopefully get one more out uh, next week, and then I have a little bit of a trip, but trying to stay on a more consistent schedule. And Robbie, thanks for holding me accountable. I appreciate it. And I will catch you all in the next one. Hope you have a great day, great week. Later. I bet when I land, they gon' tell me it's luck again. See that I'm winning, it's harder to watch. I'm setting the stage, you should give me my prize. You ain't got a soul, you lacking the spirit. You talk out your neck, I'ma show you I'm with it. I've been really happy you to sit and watch me win again and win again and win again. I know it's probably getting on me and when I'm sending them. So if I ever win.